Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Dan Levesey, and today I'm speaking with Catherine Paw, and we'll be discussing her new book, The Politics of Reproduction, Race, Medicine, and Fertility in the Age of Abolition. Catherine, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me in, Dan. So let's just kind of start with uh, what drew you to this topic. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Dan Levesey, and today I'm speaking with Catherine Paw, and we'll be discussing her new book, The Politics of Reproduction, Race, Medicine, and Fertility in the Age of Abolition. Catherine, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me in, Dan. So let's just kind of start with uh, what drew you to this topic. Um, So you're looking at the Caribbean, you're looking at issues of reproduction in the age of slavery and the transition to abolition and emancipation. Um, And how did you get into this field? You know, I actually started out um, researching... Uh, the history of midwifery in the Caribbean. Uh, I was really intrigued by the history of midwifery um, because it seemed to me uh, from my studies that it was a place where uh, women in the uh, early modern world were able to exercise quite a bit of authority. Midwives uh, in early modern societies around the Atlantic world were um, responsible for uh, all sorts of kind of pivotal decisions in their societies, about fatherhood, uh, about sex, about reproduction. Um, and I was curious that um, although there's been a lot of work on the history of midwifery uh, in the Atlantic world, in various parts of the Atlantic world, um, in Europe, in North America, um, there had not been much on the Caribbean and on um, the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, which was um, my particular field of interest. Um, so I went into this hoping to write a history of midwifery. Um, but what I found was that there were significant methodological challenges, that the history of midwives um, elsewhere in the Atlantic world had been written uh, using diaries, um, using uh, published guides written sometimes by midwives themselves. Um, whereas in the Caribbean, uh, and looking at the history of uh, enslaved midwives in particular, which was my goal, because most midwives were illiterate, um, there were not the same sources. Um, so uh, it was it was an interesting challenge. I still wanted to get at the lives of these women. Um, what I ended up doing was using plantation papers pretty closely, and, and I managed to to pull some interesting stories, which I'm sure we'll have a chance to discuss about the history of midwifery um, from those plantation papers. The story, in particular, of this midwife named Doll. Um, who worked uh, on Newton Plantation in Barbados. Um, But uh, at the same time, I I wanted to flesh that out, and I wanted to understand the world uh, in which Dahl was operating and the the political and economic pressures that she had to contend with. Uh, And so it became a a broader project uh, about the political and economic history of reproduction uh, in the Atlantic world, um, during this period when um, slavery was coming to an end. 
Yeah, and I think hopefully we can get uh, there's been some time talking about Doll because her story really is pretty fascinating, and it's it's great to uncover what her daily life was like, and also the way that she had to navigate kind of her own um, her own field and also the pressures of the plantation too. Um, maybe just kind of take the the broader look back and kind of flesh out the context of this period of time because you're looking at the late 18th and the early 19th centuries. What were sort of the the economics of reproduction in terms of slavery and the slave trade. So you really um, kind of cast this this broad net to explain why the reproduction of enslaved people was so central to the politics and also the economics of how um, reformers and also how planters were envisioning the future of slavery. So could you just sort of sketch out what the broad parameters of that were? Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that um, the primary thing that um, reformers had to contend with as they began to think about whether or not to abolish, uh, abolish the Atlantic slave trade um, was how to keep the British imperial economy going. Um, and my book does focus primarily on um, the British Caribbean, how to keep the imperial economy going uh, in the absence of the Atlantic slave trade, which made this a real um, kind of political and economic problem about reproduction. Um, the British imperial economy was very much dependent on uh, the labor of enslaved people. Uh, a kind of vast network of trade had sprung up around uh, the institution of slavery um, so that slave manufactured goods like sugar, um, commodities like uh, indigo, rice, tobacco, and so on, all depended on the labor of slaves. Um, and without um, some sustainable method of reproduction, that um, would have all collapsed. Uh, and so it's it's a kind of it's a scary um, project that they're taking on, and they have to give a lot of thought to um, what will take the place of the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, and so I, I find uh, that British politicians, British slave owners, um, and a variety of other actors, doctors, missionaries, and so on, are all thinking about how to encourage reproduction in the British Caribbean during this period. And one of the things that you talk about is the um, the sort of views of uh, African sexuality, but also their reproductive capabilities, um, their ability to bear to bear children. Um, how did how did that discourse come about? And then, um, in what ways did there become a sort of racialized discourse around the reproduction of enslaved people? Well, you know, I, I think that um, there's a lot of concern with. Uh, encouraging enslaved Africans as a class to reproduce um, and to keep that class uh, separate um, from the the master class. Uh, and so it, it does take on this racialized um, tone of uh, worrying about how to um, encourage this kind of racially specific and segregated reproduction um, that's necessary for that vision of a slave society. Yeah. Um, are there certain African traditions that get kind of um, castigated or are there certain practices that enslaved women are, are undertaking that really get vilified? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that it goes in a, a lot of different uh, directions, this concern with reform um, that uh, you see um, doctors, as I said, missionaries, um, slave owners, all thinking about how to kind of reshape the behavior uh, of uh, enslaved people in ways that they hope will encourage reproduction. Uh, so uh, on the one hand, 
there is a lot of concern with what the medical causes uh, of um, infertility might be in slave societies uh, and concerns in particular with sexual health, sexual behavior. Um, so, so there's a lot of, uh, a lot of concern about um, encouraging um, monogamous uh, sexual relationships, encouraging Christian marital mores um, as a way of encouraging fertility. Um, and a lot of kind of racially specific discourse about um, sexual promiscuity um, and and its dangers that springs up around these political and economic concerns about reproduction. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that stands out is that you have sort of this European view and also the sort of white planter class view about how to moderate um, enslaved women's reproductive health and and to get them to be more productive. Um, but one thing I really like about the, your book is that you do have this focus on what enslaved women themselves were doing to try to moderate or at least to um, oversee their reproduction. And so, as you mentioned earlier, you have this um, case of Dahl in Barbados, um, who is a midwife practicing on the Newton plantation. And could you just say a little bit about sort of what her um, experiences were like and maybe how she differed in her in her practices versus what um, some of the free society wanted for enslaved women? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, most births at Newton um, were attended by midwives. Uh, and it's uh, what, what I did um, by tracing um, the, the work of these midwives in the plantation's um, ledgers, their account books, um, was that I was able to identify um, that, that there were both um, in, uh, enslaved women who were kind of elite, like Dahl. Um, her mother had been a domestic servant. Her sister also um, was a, a sort of domestic servant, and most of uh, her female relations uh, they um, uh, were at least partly of mixed race. They had some European heritage, um, and yet uh, they um, continued to labor on the plantation, but in these privileged roles. Um, and one of those privileged roles was that Dahl took on the work of, uh, of a midwife. Um, so uh, it's interesting that uh, at Newton Plantation that she was in competition for this work um, with white women of the um the managerial class. So these, these were white women um, who were uh, kind of middling, uh, not particularly wealthy, and, and many of them were actually fairly um, poor and desperate. Uh, and uh, and there was this contentious relationship between those um, most elite enslaved people like Dahl um, and these white women of the managerial class. Um, and, uh, and this plays out in some competition over what kinds of... Um, uh, or how suitable, I guess I should say, these um, women were um, for the, the um, kind of work that they were doing for um, uh, supervising childbirth. Um, so there was a particular concern um, with Dahl uh, about her role um, in um, attending childbirth, and particularly um, there was an incident where she was accused of infanticide, um, where she uh, was... Uh, attending the, um, the birth of a baby to her niece. Uh, and in the aftermath, the plantation manager told the absentee owner in the letter that he suspected that, um, that the women in the family had killed the child for reasons that were unclear. Um, but, uh, but it becomes clear, and it's so hard to find real um, details about these women's practices, um, but it becomes clear in that letter 
that there were concerns about the suitability of Dahl as a midwife, um, that, uh, that the plantation manager kind of, uh, scolded her for not having, um, having allowed a, a white woman to attend the birth and to see the baby after it was born. One thing that I was sort of wondering is, is do you see a, a kind of a similar tension between this idea of, of midwives and a sort of professionalization or attempted professionalization of childbirth in this period that's, that's maybe similar to, to kind of Laurel Ulrich's um, famous book, The Midwife's Tale? Um, is there a kind of similar or competing tension that's going on in the Caribbean at this time? Yeah, you know, there uh, were doctors working in the Caribbean. I, I think that um, that they were outnumbered in some ways. Um, they, you know, the, the um, racial uh, divide is not the same where uh, as as in parts of the U.S. Um, where there's rarely a, a black majority. Um, so, uh, and so certainly in Ulrich's book, there's there's really um, no discussion of race or of racial tensions. Um, in the Caribbean, what I found is that there's uh, there were doctors who um, who attended the plantations, um, and then sometimes tried to uh, to make a little something extra for themselves by going back to Great Britain and writing books about slave care, um, the the management of slave health, um, and these doctors frequently included chapters or large sections of their book on how to encourage reproduction. Um, so these books would have been read by absentee planters who aspired to, to transform the management of their plantations. Um, but they didn't necessarily reflect the reality of what was going on on Caribbean plantations. Um, and the work that I've done looking at account books from Newton Plantation indicates that, in fact, doctors rarely attended childbirth um, at Newton Plantation during this period. I found, I think, two instances where there was a very difficult birth and a doctor was called in. But the vast majority of the, um, the child care attendance was being done by these um, poor white and uh, elite Afro-Caribbean women. Um, maybe one, one final question about that, um, just because I, I think it's an important issue. Um, do, do you see much evidence or can we really get at what enslaved women were were trying to do in terms of their own reproduction. So beyond doll and, and midwives who were attending childbirth, um, you know, there's a lot that you talk about in terms of um, reformers really vilifying enslaved women for promiscuous practices for African traditions, which they think are harming reproduction. Um, and is there any way to get at what enslaved women were were doing themselves? I mean, did the plantation accounts give us much sense about how everyday enslaved women were were trying to balance their lives in terms of reproduction or um, how they were taking care of their own reproductive health. Is there, is there much that we can really tell from the sources? Yeah. You know, I think that this is another kind of methodological challenge. Um, and yet I, I do think that it's possible to bring out of the sources that were written by primarily by white men during this period on um, some sense of what Afro-Caribbean women were doing. Um, I, I haven't found the, the account books so rich for detail about um uh, childbirth practices, but I do find those doctors' accounts um, that frequently, even though the doctors are kind of dismissive uh, and uh, don't don't think much at all of Afro-Caribbean women's practices, and we still get a glimpse of what those practices were, um, and also of where these doctors and slave owners, in some cases, encountered resistance. 
Um, so one example would be Matthew Lewis, um, who was uh, raised in Great Britain, but um, heir to a, a couple of West India states um, and visited them in the 19th century. Um, his diary uh, discusses a, a few instances where enslaved women pushed back against the, uh, the new practices that were being implemented by um, doctors in the Caribbean. Um, for example, um, he uh, tells the story of a group of enslaved women from a neighboring plantation who came to him complaining about attempts to force them to wean their children too early. Um, and uh, that these women had banded together uh, and marched over to his plantation. They'd heard he was a sympathetic ear uh, to let him know that um, that these um, attempts to um, to force them to wean their children in their first or second year, that this was too early. Uh, and he, uh, of course, that one woman said, you know, my child is going to end up dead as a result of this. And it was really emphatic. Um, and of course, Lewis is dismissive of, of their concerns, but but we know um, from that, that, that there were, were um, passionate attempts by Afro-Caribbean women to, um, to push back against some of these practices. I also have seen doctors complaining about Afro-Caribbean women who object to uh, attempts to force them to give birth in hospitals um, and who insist on continuing to um, give birth in their own quarters. Um, so, uh, uh, so you can definitely trace a lot of resistance um, in these sources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that Caribbean context, I think, is so interesting. And I was, um, I think you do a good job of really showing what enslaved women themselves were trying to do um, uh, in light of such a paucity of sources in certain ways. Um, if we can maybe turn to uh, back to the abolition movement and some of the larger political discourses and even sort of legal issues at the time. Um, you talk about uh, one of the more famous cases in the early years of the English abolition movement. That's the case of James Somerset. Um, but you kind of tell it very briefly because you're actually wanting to tell a slightly earlier story um, about a woman named Mary Hylas, which I think hasn't really gotten a lot of attention, but is in some ways a really crucial context. Um, so uh, for those who may not know the story of James Somerset uh, and the Somerset v. Stewart decision in England, I wonder if you could sort of briefly summarize that, but then also talk about the story of Mary Hylas, which uh, is really crucial to the context behind that. Uh, and also maybe how issues of marriage and slavery get get bound up in those whole uh, legal discussions. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, the Somerset case is um, possibly the most famous legal case in the history of British abolitionism, uh, uh, certainly uh, up there um, in the top five or so. Uh, Somerset, James Somerset, was uh, an enslaved man who was brought to England uh, and whose master attempted to forcibly remove him from England back to the colonies. Uh, and Somerset's um, case, uh, he he objected. Uh, he um, uh, filed a, a, a case uh, um, under the, the habeas corpus laws uh, to uh, claim that, that his master had no right to um, force a servant out of Great Britain in that way. Um, and this case is seen to have um, kind of widely established uh, that uh, the laws of slavery, colonial laws of slavery, did not apply in England. Uh, so uh, while that case is very famous and establishes 
um, uh, kind of marks the the onset of the age of abolition. I, I think historians would say. Uh, at the same time, uh, I, I find this case of Mary Hylas, who was Dahl's mother, um, also has really important implications. It's similar, but it's different, um, and uh, I think deserves uh, equal claim to fame in the history of slavery and abolition. Um, Mary Hylas, I started looking into her case because uh, she's Dole's mother and I was interested in knowing more about the family, um, but I was really delighted to discover that uh, Mary's story was, was equally um, fascinating and provided its own sort of window onto the, uh, the history of reproduction and the politics of reproduction. Um, Mary Hylas traveled with uh, the owners of Newton Plantation as a sort of maid servant to uh, Great Britain. Uh, she traveled as a maidservant to her, her mistress uh, to Great Britain. And, and while she was there, she married a formerly enslaved man, uh, John Hylas. Uh, she later returned to the Caribbean with her mistress. Uh, and afterward, John Hylas filed a lawsuit uh, against the Newtons, uh, against her owners, saying that they had unlawfully taken his wife away from him uh, and asking for damages. Uh, so this case was heard in the late 1760s before the Somerset case. Uh, it was an early uh, case in which uh, Grendel Sharp, who later uh, was pivotal uh, in, arguing, uh, in, in pushing forward the Somerset case, uh, Grendel Sharp also became in, involved in this case with Mary Hylas slightly earlier. Uh, and the, uh, the records related to the case indicate um, that, that there was some discussion of whether her, her um, husband or her master had a greater claim to her. Um, so it was this uh, case about uh, the relationship between slavery and marriage. Uh, it it uh, didn't resolve well for John Hylas. He was given a, a sort of, um, I think it was a penny. <laughs> he was given a really small um, amount of money as a kind of token gesture. Um, Mary Hylas never did return to England. It's unclear why, whether she um, chose to stay in Barbados, whether she ever even knew about the case is all unclear. Um, but it's interesting uh, and there, there are not very extensive records about the arguments. It's mostly um, Granville Sharp's uh, records that we know anything about the case um, compared to the Somerset case. But then the Somerset case um, has really extensive records that indicate that, once again, this question of marriage and slavery, of the relationship between the authority of masters and the authority of husbands, um, was really pivotal in the Somerset case. Uh, and it's a, it was a, a legal question that continued to haunt reformers um, throughout this, the age of abolition. Uh, as reformers began to think about how to encourage reproduction, many of them landed on the possibility um, that they could encourage Christian marital mores as a, a way of encouraging fertility. Um, that was the kind of the logic of the day, was that uh, once um, people were following God's command to increase and uh, to to marry, that the um, ability to increase and multiply would ensue. Uh, so, uh, so it does raise kind of interesting questions about uh, how um, the attempts to pro promote marriage would play out in slave societies and how 
the authority of fathers and masters might be reconciled. Yeah, and I was just really fascinated with that description that you have in the book about the ways in which marriage and slavery, from a legal perspective, become debated as similar institutions and similar aspects of dependence. And I thought that was um, a, a really fascinating aspect of all this that ties in with your your consideration of reproduction generally. So maybe to kind of bring us forward to the actual abolition um, of the slave trade. Um, so you, as you mentioned, there's a lot of debate sort of even before, but certainly after the Somerset decision and Mary Hylas's own experiences in which that question of reproduction and trying to create self-reproducing enslaved populations that, that wouldn't need the constant influx of Africans coming in. Um, finally, in 1807, uh, England does abolish the slave trade. Um, and uh, so I'm wondering how uh, what the actual abolition of the slave trade um, did to the debate over enslaved people's bodies and their reproduction. Um, and if there's a transformation after um, the success of the abolition actually occurs. Yeah, well, uh, once the abolition actually occurs once the Atlantic slave trade is abolished. The British Empire is really committed irrevocably to this policy of promoting reproduction as a way to um, to bring the British imperial economy forward um, and to ensure its continued well-being. And so uh, the, the um, imperative to encourage reproduction becomes all the more pressing. Uh, and uh, in, in the aftermath, I find that um, British politicians become, uh, and colonial governments as well, become kind of obsessed with quantification uh, and with um, generating data about um, population size. Uh, so um, I, I, I think uh, there's been a lot of interesting work done in our field about the politics of information during this period, and I would point to this as one place where um, information becomes really crucial to driving um, policy uh, and to justifying policy. So uh, the um, the registry system in particular that's implemented in the aftermath uh, of the abolition of the Atlantic slave trade uh, is it, um, probably the clearest example of this obsession with quantification where slave owners are required in uh, in the col- in the British Caribbean colonies to um, enumerate, the enslaved people that they own to account for um, losses or gains year to year. Um, and just uh, this, this registry system generates a, a massive quantity of data um, that allows British politicians to um, think more systematically about demography in the Caribbean and about reproduction. Yeah, and do you see it as being uh, the, this enumeration of enslaved people um, do you see that kind of joining into Malthusian philosophies, which are really kind of taking off in the early 19th century? Is it, is it, um, is it transforming that debate or is it just sort of subject to Malthusian viewpoints? Uh, you know, I, um, I've, I've been really interested in the course of writing this book in, in understanding how uh, Malthusian ideas about demography um, relate to the Atlantic slave trade. Um, Malthus, of course, is widely considered to be the father of modern demography, um, and yet most of his work um, was not focused on the Caribbean. It was actually a subject that he was kind of reluctant um, to to address, and only um, in the kind of climactic debates about, uh, in the years leading up to the climactic debates about the Atlantic slave trade, did he 
um, make a revision um, to uh, to his work uh, in order to account for um, the situation in the Caribbean. Uh, and you know, I, I think too. Um, but but that that uh, intervention did end up being pivotal, um, and Wilberforce um, claimed that he had helped. Um, the cause of abolitionism along by um, claiming by saying that there was indeed some kind of uh, catastrophic demographic situation going on in the Caribbean that needed to be addressed. Um, but you know, in terms of Malthusian ideas about the mechanics of population growth, about how population growth works, I, I think that um, he he made a couple of uh, really significant interventions that had. Um, that informed the way that slave owners and um, colonial uh, governments, British politicians, thought about um, how to to manage the reproduction in the Caribbean um, for decades to come. That's that still inform our ways of thinking about these things. Um, firstly, I, I think that he um, blamed the sexual indiscretion of laborers for um, for problems with reproduction. Um, that this was. Uh, Something that he uh, he used this line of thinking both in Great Britain and in the Caribbean. Um, so uh, in the Caribbean, his particular concern was that um, if slave populations were lagging, there must have been some kind of moral catastrophe going on. So he basically um, blames uh, sexual irregularities in the Caribbean for uh, for the decline of populations there. Uh, in Great Britain, on the other hand, he thinks that uh, that laborers are reproducing too quickly, but it's still the fault of the laborers and their sexual decisions that they're having too much sex, um, and and this is creating too many people in that case. Um, so it goes kind of either way for Malthus, but in the case of the Caribbean, it's a problem of undersupply also caused by too much sex. Um, and the, the out growth of that for Malthus, I think, is that laboring people should be responsible for the cost of their own reproduction, that this is a way to get them to kind of moderate their sexual behavior, to tailor it to the needs of the labor market at a given time. Uh, and this idea that um, that laborers have to um, be constantly conscious of their ability to, um, to reproduce, of the demands of the labor market, uh, that this uh, justifies policies in the aftermath of the abolition of the slave trade and of slavery, um, such as charging mothers for health care for their children, um, that you see slave owners and British politicians saying, well, you know, um, parents have to be responsible for their children or for their decision to have children. Uh, and so ultimately, these kind of poultry rations, food rations, medical rations that we had been giving them under slavery, uh, really now these are their responsibility. Um, so there's this kind of uh, ethic of parental responsibility that's embedded in Malthusian demography um, that I think is really pivotal uh, in the after, uh, during the age of abolition and uh, in the aftermath of the decision to abolish slavery. But I was going to ask you about the issue of matrimony in, in the Caribbean, because that, that kind of comes out of uh, that issue around Malthusian demography, and you, you talk about sort of this increased responsibility put on even a uh, free woman of color in the Caribbean. And I wonder if you could sort of talk about the religious reform movements of the early 19th century and how they connect with that issue of reproduction, but more on the side of freedom 
than necessarily entirely on slavery. I I was interested in um, the role that missionaries play in uh, encouraging Christian marital mores uh, in the in an effort to promote reproduction. Uh, and so I, I took a closer look at the um, Methodist missionary records related to Barbados, um, uh, to, to the island where Dahl lived. Uh, and I was uh, interested in how three women of color uh, in uh, related to the Methodist mission and how um, the work of the Methodist missionaries um, reshaped uh the, the economy in which free women of color operated. Um, so uh, um, there was certainly among Methodist missionaries an emphasis on nuclear families, on families that were centered on the authority of the father. Um, and uh, this was uh, something new for free women of color um, who had previously um, uh basically been kind of uh, ruled out of, of marriage as an option. Um, even what, in cases where there weren't legal prescriptions, uh, in practice, free women of color rare, rarely um, had legally recognized marriages. Um, and so uh, involvement in the Methodist mission meant for free women of color um, that they were uh, involving themselves in a, a new idea, a uh, new um, kinship structure uh, that um, that hadn't previously been the norm. Um, so uh, one example is Sarah Ann Gill, uh, who took on a, a role, a leadership role uh, in the uh, Barbados mission. Um, there was a period when uh, the, uh, the Methodist missionary, William Shrewsbury, was chased off the island by people who were outraged um, by, uh, by his preaching. Uh, and in that time, Sarah Ann Gill, um, this free woman of color in Barbados, took on a, a leading role in the mission. She became kind of correspondent, the local correspondent for the Methodist missionaries, uh, and she was holding um, religious uh, meetings in her own lodgings and so on. Um, so this uh, this was an opportunity for uh, for someone like Sarah Ann Gill. Um, to exercise a new kind of leadership in Bajan uh, society. Um, but at the same time, uh, it, it led her into negotiating a new kind of e- economy of sex um, in that she, um, unlike free women of color of, of a previous generation, um, she was uh, under a lot of pressure to um, conform to Christian marital mores uh, and seems to have embraced that that direction in her own life. Um, so uh, so this uh, the, the situation for women like Sarah Ann Gill, uh, who were uh, involved in these paternalistic um, family structures meshed in them, um, was rather different. One example uh, would be uh, in terms of inheritance. Um, so there's been a lot of good work done to illustrate, uh, and I review some of this, Pedro Welsh and others have talked about um, uh the, the ability of free women of color who were not married to make their own decisions uh, about how to um, how to leave property, um, who would inherit their property after they died. Um, but uh, the, the women of this rising generation, uh, of which I think Gil is emblematic, uh, were uh, instead 
enmeshed in uh, legal constraints about the patrilineal descent of property that didn't give them quite the same um, freedoms uh, as they had had previously. Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder if um, you could just say a little bit to maybe kind of wrap up about this, because I think that you do a, the chronology is a really interesting one of, of this examination of enslavement's bodies and this transition in the religious reform movements of the 19th century into a supervision over matrimony. And I wonder what the legacy of these debates are even beyond this period of slavery and, and emancipation. I, I think that some of the themes um, that come forward uh, during the age of abolition, uh, uh, the themes in the governance of reproduction are themes that um, continue to play out uh, to this day um, in governmental involvement in reproduction. Um, so themes like the importance of parental responsibility and the, the tendency to kind of to see um, child rearing as a, the responsibility of individual parents rather than the community um, is is one. Uh, that plays out uh, to this day. Um, in the Caribbean specifically, I, I think that, um, uh, and Juanita de Barros has done some really wonderful work uh, on how this plays out through the 20th century um, that concerns uh, about venereal disease were one way in which um, the uh, sexual sexuality uh, and reproduction in the Caribbean were managed. Um, the concerns about venereal disease were used as, as an excuse in some ways, uh, if I can put it that way, to, um, to, uh, for governments to intervene in the, the sexual lives of people in the Caribbean. Um, also, uh, the regulation of birthing practices is a, a kind of running theme uh, in uh, the history of the Caribbean through the 20th century. Um, Things like uh, baby-saving leagues, um, attempts to train local midwives persisted into the 20th century um, and, and, uh, and created similar hierarchies of power to what I've described with Dahl um, in that British women were uh, and local white women were uh, put in positions of power um, as trainers um, and as kind of uh, instructors in domestic hygiene over um, Afro-Caribbean women. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting long durée story of of the ways in which those issues haven't quite um, washed out. Just I, I mean, want to kind of close to see if you want to talk a little about so the project that you're working on now. I know that you have um, sort of dealt with the issues of medicalization a little bit um, in this book, but I was wondering if you could talk about the new project that you're working on at the moment. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm currently at work on a second book uh, about the uh, history of venereal disease in the Atlantic world, and particularly um, the, the slave societies of the Caribbean and North America. Uh, I'm interested, uh, obviously this stems from my uh, uh, the research in my first book, um, where I became interested in understanding how um, doctors understood the causes of infertility among Afro-Caribbean women. Uh, and began exploring their ideas about venereal disease. Uh, and I uh, became intrigued in particular by uh, the relationship between um, two disease categories and, and how that evolves over time, the two diseases being um, yaws and syphilis. Uh, so uh, I was intrigued because, uh, on the one hand, 
Uh, many modern medical authorities um, see yaws and syphilis as more or less the same disease. They, um, it, the germ that causes them is identical under a microscope. The um, symptoms are similar um, uh, qualitatively. And, uh, and yet, these two disease categories have very different histories. Um, and on the one hand, syphilis, uh, the story is pretty well known among Europeans, was seen as this um, sexualized disease. Uh, and then on the other hand, uh, yeah, as I, I, as I dug through the sources and I looked at um, accounts of women in Africa, in the Caribbean, um, a few male healers too, but many women are described as treating yaws um, in a particular way as a childhood disease, um, as something that could be, an, uh, that inoculation could prove effective in treating. Um, and so this, um, this discrepancy is fascinating, and it's fascinating to see um, healers, both um, healers of, you know, white healers and also um, healers of African descent kind of and grappling with um, these two disease categories and the relationship between them and trying to figure out um, how, uh, whether this disease is really related to, to sex in some way or, or not. Um, so I think it's, it's a story that says a lot about um, the possibility for culture um, to shape uh, our ideas about disease um, and for um, disease concepts to become bound up in all sorts of other cultural baggage about sex and race. Well, that sounds really interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing that uh, that come out. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the to discuss the book. I think it's a really fascinating study of not only the, the era of abolition and slavery in the Caribbean, but also the ways in which uh, reproduction and women's health become a really crucial part of that. Thanks so much, Dan, for having me. It's a pleasure. Right. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.